0: Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. Though most of our episodes will feature me interviewing somebody who I think has the ability to improve some aspect of your personal or professional life, I've also decided to make my blogs available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you on your own leadership journey. So today's episode is all about execution, and more specifically, what you need to do to give yourself the best odds of actually executing on the goals that you set for your organization. Now, there's a well-known maxim that you might be familiar with that states, strategy without execution is hallucination. And in today's audio blog, I'll share with you why I think that's true. I'll do so by sharing some of the lessons that I've learned over the years related to actually executing on the strategy that you set out. Now, in my experience as a CEO, and of course, in the experience of countless others, strategy is actually the easy part. Almost any mediocre CEO can set logical and compelling goals for a company, but It's the truly skilled CEO who adjusts her tools, systems, and processes to regularly and successfully execute on those same goals. As Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, who are authors of the seminal business book Built to Last, said, building a visionary company requires 1% vision and 99% alignment. Today, I will attempt to share with you the best tools that I'm aware of to create that alignment. I hope you enjoy it. things are as energizing as the annual goal-setting process, where the management team decides on the company's major priorities for the coming year, usually generating a sense of enthusiasm, optimism, and confidence. Conversely, few things are as deflating as the annual review, where the same management team often retrospectively discusses how and why they missed most of the goals that they had set for the company just 12 months earlier. Why is this? Why are so many motivated, well-intentioned, and otherwise capable management teams able to set logical and compelling goals each year, yet so few seem to be able to regularly achieve them? One possible answer is that after most companies set their objectives, they assume, or more accurately, they implicitly hope, that their existing teams, systems, tools, and processes will be sufficient to achieve those objectives, which rarely proves to be true. I can say this from experience, as I missed more than my fair share of annual goals when running my own company. The more goals I missed, however, the more I learned about what to do or what not to do the following year to increase my odds of both setting and achieving truly meaningful goals. What follows in this audio blog is a collection of some of those lessons. I hope you'll apply all of them, or at the very least some of them, with a view towards increasing your own goal attainment rate. Now, some of these best practices were derived from my reading of a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution, or 4DX for short, written by Chris McChesney, Sean Covey, and Jim Hewling, which which remains my favorite book on corporate goal setting and execution. We implemented their program within our own business, and I'd advise any entrepreneur or CEO to do the same. Lesson one, stop setting so many goals. In short, Setting too many goals is one of the primary reasons why most companies find themselves achieving none of them. Now, I recognize that when running a small to medium-sized business, there are a seemingly endless number of problems to solve and opportunities to act upon. These problems and opportunities usually present themselves in the context of finite resources, competitive pressures, and tight timeframes. And as a result, it's incredibly difficult to limit your annual priorities to just a few things. Yet, if you want to achieve the things that are truly most important to your business, then that's exactly what you should be doing. There is a diminishing marginal benefit to setting a greater number of annual goals. Indeed, studies have shown that the greater the number of goals that you set for your company, the less likely you are to make meaningful progress against any of them. If you deem everything to be important, then what you're really saying is that nothing is of particular importance. Indeed, many CEOs wear a long list of annual goals as a sort of badge of honor, implicitly thinking of them as a reflection of their ambition. In my experience, though, a long list of goals is usually far more reflective of a leader who doesn't truly understand where she should be allocating her company's scarce resources. Remember, any mediocre CEO can set a large number of goals. That's not hard but it is the truly skillful leader who can distill her company's problems and opportunities into just a few truly important objectives. Therefore, the following two skills become critically important for the CEO, both of which are harder than they may sound. Number one, prioritizing what is truly important in an environment where everything can reasonably argued to be important. Number two, Selecting the right goals, the achievement of which will lead to other desired outcomes naturally falling into place. In fact, choosing goals based on the concept of importance is actually how most companies undermine the achievement of their goals before they even set them. As a result, when you formulate your own annual goals, don't ask what's most important, again, because almost anything can reasonably be argued as being important. Instead, ask yourself, if every other area of our operation remained at its current level of performance, what is the one area where change would have the greatest impact? Now, based on my own experience, your company should have no more than two major goals per year. Anything more than that, and you'll likely be decreasing your prospect of achievement against any of them. Now, this isn't to say that your company will achieve only two things in any given year. Indeed, if you select the right goals, then your achievement of them can and will lead to other desired outcomes naturally falling into place. In this way, your major goals could serve as annual themes for your organization, creating a North Star of clarity for the following 12 months that should guide substantially all of your major decisions. In my experience, having more than two North Star themes, in addition to being an oxymoron, will do nothing but undermine the clarity that every CEO should always be aiming to create. Lesson two, link your annual goals to your bigger picture ambitions. Outside of the management team, particularly at lower levels of the organization, annual goals can sometimes be viewed as arbitrary, hollow, or even predictable, all of which cause your goals to lose meaning. And this is a big problem. As a CEO, to increase your odds of hitting the goals that you set, you must find a way to ascribe a genuine meaning to the goals that you set so that your employees understand why it's important that the company achieves them. In my experience, the best way to do this is to tie your annual goals to something much bigger. It could be your company's vision statement, mission statement, your core values, your BHAG, otherwise known as your big, hairy, audacious goal, or your 10-year target. Assuming that these things themselves are meaningful, which they should be, then an annual goal that is directly derived from them will indeed also have meaning, so long as you clearly communicate the link between the two. For example, suppose that the vision statement of a healthcare software company says, we want to deliver high-quality healthcare to 1 million people living below the poverty line by 2030. Now suppose that they sell their software through channel or distribution partners instead of an in-house sales force selling directly to end users. Let's suppose that they have an annual goal that simply states acquire 30 new channel partners by year end. Now that can sound arbitrary at best or hollow at worst and in any case it is likely to not be particularly motivating. Now, contrast that with a CEO who starts with the vision of 1 million underprivileged people receiving healthcare by 2030 and communicates that this year, 30 new channel partners are going to be required to ensure that the first group of 100,000 patients can be adequately cared for, which in turn will save up to 10,000 lives. Now, though the desired end result and the goal is the same, which is acquire 30 new channel partners by year-end, This latter example furnishes the goal with both meaning and motivational qualities that will help it resonate better with the people who are ultimately going to be charged with making that outcome happen. Lesson three, concretely distill your company goals down to both departments and individuals. Even when organizational goals are properly articulated and put into context, they often become a bit more nebulous the further down the organizational chart one goes. This isn't necessarily because the goals themselves are ill-conceived or illogical, but because at lower levels of the company, employees don't always see how they can personally impact or contribute towards those goals. To address this problem, you must concretely distill your one or two annual company goals down into both departmental and individual goals for every department and for every person within your company. For example, in one year, our primary company goal was to acquire 100 new customers for a newly released software product by the end of the year. Now, with that goal in mind, we had to work with each department head and each individual to determine what their most meaningful goals would be in light of our company's primary objective. For example, our marketing team had two primary goals. The first was a total pipeline contribution target, i.e. generating a sufficient number of leads to hit our customer acquisition goal. And another one was a lead to opportunity conversion rate target, i.e. ensuring that the leads that they generated were of sufficient quality. Another example was our customer success group. They had a goal related to the satisfaction rate of recently onboarded customers who had purchased the new product as well as a goal based on the retention rate of those customers. And of course, both of these goals were guided by the principle that we wouldn't hit our goal of 100 new customers by year-end if we regularly lost our newly acquired customers only a few months after we signed them. And so on and so on across sales, engineering, support, and all of our other departments. Once departmental goals were established, each department head and each of their direct reports were then jointly tasked with distilling their departmental goals into individual goals for each member of the team. For example, if our marketing group's departmental goal was to generate a certain amount of our company's total lead pipeline, and we knew roughly how large our pipeline needed to be to acquire 100 new customers, then our content writer, who was a member of our marketing team, could have an individual goal to write and release X number of downloadable content pieces per month with an understanding that one piece of content typically generates Y leads and so on and so on throughout every member of the marketing team. Though this may sound easy to do, it requires a very careful study of what specific levers you need certain departments and thus certain people to pull in order to genuinely contribute to your company's primary goals. For example, if your company's goal has something to do with revenue growth, should the primary goal of your sales team be related to more new customer acquisitions or more sales back to existing customers? Should it be increasing the average price per customer, or should it be increasing the average number of products sold into each customer? Presumably not all of these levers will equally contribute to your company's revenue goal, so you must select these departmental goals carefully, ideally using data and not opinions, to prove a causal relationship between the departmental and company goals. Lesson four, tie the attainment of goals to compensation. Another reason why goals often lose meaning the further down the organizational chart one goes is because even if employees know how they can personally contribute to the company's goals, they may not personally be incented to do so. Said another way, you must find an answer to the proverbial employee question of, hey, what's in it for me? Remember, people generally do what they're incented to do. I used to get enormously frustrated when it was suggested to me that I had to explicitly compensate my employees for helping the company to achieve its goals. After all, isn't that what I was paying their salary for? Over time, however, I came to learn two things. First, Achieving very specific organizational goals often demands that employees do more of something, do something differently, or do something much more efficiently than the day-to-day tasks that they already get done in return for their salary. Number two, if I chose the right organizational goal and we achieved it, then any incremental pay due to the employees in return for that achievement would be more than worth it. One year, we thought we had solved this problem by tying our company-wide bonus plan entirely to the achievement of our primary organizational goals, and we had two at the time. Though this represented a big step in the right direction, the magnitude of the bonus was too small to make any meaningful difference. In our case, employees could earn up to 5% of their annual salaries by way of a bonus if the company goals were achieved, and a further 5% of their salary based on a subjective evaluation of their individual performance. We failed to realize that the magnitude of the incentive needed to be commensurate with the importance of the goal in question. In our case, consider an average software engineer who made $100,000 a year. Now, she would only earn a $5,000 bonus if we achieved our company goals. After tax inflation, that number was probably closer to $3,000 in real dollars. Spread across 250 working days in a calendar year, that equates to only an additional $12 per day per employee if the company achieved its goal. This, simply put, was not enough to move the dial, especially when contrasted with hitting a company-level goal whose magnitude we described as game-changing. Said another way, A-plus goals require A-plus incentives. You can get by with C-minus incentives only if you set C-minus goals. Lesson five, track output metrics and input metrics. Most people understand that it's difficult to achieve a goal unless you're regularly tracking the progress that you're making against that goal. So if your goal is to acquire 100 new customers in 12 months, you're naturally better off checking your customer acquisition numbers weekly, monthly, or quarterly, as opposed to simply looking at the final number 12 months from now. Most people, however, don't understand that, in this example, tracking customer acquisition numbers alone is far from sufficient. This is so because the number of customers acquired is an output metric. It's the result of some group of activities that are required inputs to acquiring a new customer And by the time a new customer is acquired or lost, it's already too late to do anything about it. What's more, it's possible for your company to miss this goal due to circumstances entirely outside of your control. Now, almost all companies track these types of output metrics, but the real magic comes when all of the relevant input metrics are tracked and input metrics are generally far more important. In this example, input metrics represent those activities that need to occur long before a customer has been acquired. So for example, if our goal is to acquire 100 new customers in 12 months, how many leads do we need to generate per month? In order to generate those leads, how many free webinars do we need to host? In order to ensure that those webinars are sufficiently well attended, how many promotional emails do we need to send in the preceding two weeks? In our example, New customer acquisition is our output metric, but leads generated, webinars hosted, and promotional emails sent are the key input metrics that will tell us whether or not we're on track to hit our goal long before we succeed or fail against it. Let's take another simpler example. If your goal is to lose 20 pounds in six months, instead of simply tracking weight lost, which is an output metric, you'd be much better off tracking calories consumed per day, number of visits to the gym per week, and the average intensity of each gym session, all three of which are input metrics. Remember, input metrics are within your control and they're predictive of the output metric manifesting. Lesson six, have a regular review cadence that includes employee commitments. Once you've established your input metrics for your one to two primary company goals, the next step is to establish a scorecard for yourself and your management team that passes what I call the desert island test. Now, the desert island test is as follows. Pretend that you, the CEO, were stranded on a desert island for the entire year, and you're only handed a single one-sided piece of paper each week that has to answer the following question for you. How's our company trending? And the only thing permitted on that single piece of paper is five to 10 input metrics representing your one to two company goals. Once you've established your desert island scorecard, you you need to make it a formal part of each weekly management meeting. In our case, we formally dedicated 10 minutes per meeting to reviewing the scorecard. If and when you identify a metric that is off track relative to that goal, it should be flagged and discussed at the highest level of the company each week until it's back on track. Each week, whether their departmental goal was on track or not, in our case, each manager would then make a commitment to the rest of the management team in regards to what he or she would do this week to improve their input metrics, which in turn, of course, moved the company closer to its primary goal. We also dedicated five minutes of each meeting to review commitments and to-do items that we agreed to during the previous week's meeting. Each of your department heads should also be doing the same thing during their weekly meetings with their respective teams. Review their scorecards, identify and discuss any issues or input metrics that are off track, and have employees make weekly commitments regarding what they're planning to do this week to improve their input metrics. In following this approach, you will have distilled an otherwise nebulous annual goal into a series of actionable commitments made on a weekly basis for every employee in the company. This is extremely powerful alignment. Though weekly commitments alone aren't enough. If you spend all of your time thinking only in weekly increments, you're very likely to miss the forest from the trees. This is why you also need to create a quarterly meeting and commitment cadence to complement your weekly process. For example, during our quarterly sessions, we would often take the team off site, usually for one to two days. We would go through the same process of reviewing the scorecard, dissecting the input and output metrics, making commitments, and reviewing progress against commitments that we made last quarter. Naturally, the quarterly commitments tend to be of a higher level than the weekly commitments. For example, if the content writer that we mentioned earlier had a goal of publishing x downloadable pieces of content for the year, his weekly commitment may have been something like research and decide upon the newest topic before the end of the week. In contrast, his quarterly commitment could be, for example, to have signed partnerships in place with a graphic designer, a copy editor, and a web development company in place by the end of the quarter to make his content pieces more impactful. In summary, if you're exhausted just listening to this, then you've accidentally actually stumbled upon the reason why so many companies rarely achieve their annual goals. It's because it's damn hard work and it requires real changes in behavior, structure, processes, and in many cases, compensation. If your company has some truly important objectives to achieve this year, don't fall into the trap of assuming or implicitly hoping that your existing teams, systems, tools, and processes will be sufficient to achieve those objectives.